Hello and welcome to this Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. If you haven't tuned in before, the Law in Sport podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, as well as get to meet some of the exciting and interesting people who are working behind the scenes advising sports organisations, either internally and externally, on legal matters, on business matters, or athletes who are affected by legal issues. Now, on today's show, I just wanted to run a disclaimer through that the audio recording on my microphone wasn't working particularly well during this recording, so I apologise. A harness sounds fantastic, mine does not sound so very great, so um, please you know, I hope you can tolerate that. It's not too bad, but we've done some post-edits on it, so hopefully you enjoy it. Our guest today is Ahana Mehotra. She is the founder of AM Sports Law and Management Co. and a partner at TMT Law Practice. Ahana is a sports lawyer and entertainment lawyer who advises clients on matters such as league formation, transfer of players, selection disputes, arbitration, intellectual property rights, media, broadcasting, sponsorship agreements, merchandising agreements, betting and gaming of fantasy, so a broad spectrum of work. She also serves as the chairperson of the National Anti-Doping Disciplinary Panel in India and she's a member of the Arbitrational Tribunal constituted by Football Delhi and she used to play cricket for India under-19's women's team. So the sports sector hasn't necessarily been the most inclusive and particularly for women, uh, and nor has sports law for that matter. How did you get into sports law? Exactly what you said five minutes ago in my introduction that uh, I used to play cricket. And uh, actually when I used to play cricket, women's cricket was not even under the board of control for cricket in India. We were actually a separate body. And um, there seemed to be no future in terms of, you know, uh, how, being able to go a long way. I don't think I had the foresight that back then. Women's cricket came under BCCI only in 2008. Uh, the time that I, I stopped playing cricket in 2006, that's when my selection took place for the Indiana 19 team. And uh, I sort of gave that up. Uh, I did. I, I was chosen to play India under 19 for representing India in the South Asian Federation Cup. And which was actually class, uh, clashing with my class 12 board exams, which is final exams to finish school. And, uh, you know, my folks looked at me and said, there's no way on earth you can't finish school. You have to graduate <laughs> from school. So I said, yeah, well, I gave up my cricketing, cricketing career then. And I went to law school instead. And law was something I'd picked as a career. I think I started focusing on the idea of going to law school when I was 13. So I decided pretty young that I wanted to do law. Uh, so then there was, there was, can, can I ask you why, what was, that's an unusual, or maybe it's not so unusual. Maybe the people are much more focused. Oh, so actually, uh, uh, my grandfather was a lawyer. He had a law degree, even though he's not practiced law. And I guess, uh, he had somehow, you know, had always been a role model in my life and, uh, none of, um, we, we used to initially live in a joint family. My father had two older brothers, et cetera. And uh, none of the kids were, went, you know, did law or nobody went to law school. And it was always my father's thing that uh, nobody in my father's generation went to law school. And then I was the next generation, you know, and somewhere I think as a child, my parents just drilled it inside my head that uh, you must consider this as a career. And the more I read about it, the more fascinated I got. And then I think uh, I used to write a lot back in school also. So it was, you know, came naturally to me to be able to write. To I was also always extremely opinionated, and uh, you know, I, you know, has always sort of 
call a spade a spade. So, you know, just being able to express my views, standing or, you know, up for myself or for that matter, having strong opinions, I guess, all of that merged together and uh, kind of, you know, took me. And, and to be honest, in hindsight, if I didn't do law, I don't know if, what else would I have picked as a career option. <laughs> Because I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't a good science student. So you know, going to engineering school was out of the question. Going to medical school was out of question. I'm not a particularly creative person. So you know, doing something like advertising or design. So it sounds sound like it's a good thing that you chose law. It's all enabled you to have a vehicle to, to 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 debate as much as anything. And maybe politics might have been the other thing for you. But the in terms of then, so you're playing, you're studying law. I love this um, sort of background, you know, being inspired by your grandfather and you know, being you know, the first in your family to practice law is, is a, uh, an accomplishment to be very proud of. And so you, you do that. And then, you know, India has been taking much more interest because of the work that you, many of the other people, the leading lawyers in India have been doing um, to promote sports law or the law as applied to sport, whichever way you want to phrase it. Um, but the time that you were coming in, you know, you, so you, did you get a training contract? How did that work? Did you, was it applying for a training contract or do you do it in India? It was basically that I went to law school and I started exploring different areas of law. And that's when, you know, that urge sort of, you know, uh, desire to reconnect with sport was really strong is when I started exploring the idea of doing sports law. And I went to law school in 2006. The IPL was set up in 2007. Nandan was pretty much the only whole and sole sports lawyer in India at that point in time. That's Nandan Kamath. Sorry, for those people who don't know, it's Nandan Kamath who was on one of the previous podcasts. And uh, I actually didn't get the opportunity to be able to work under Nandan. At, you know, uh, uh, I don't think I knew too well then that I should have applied for an internship under him. It's only much later. <laughs> It's only much later that I got to know him. And, uh, you know, it was actually, uh, I was talking to, I did a summer school at London School of Economics. And I had a trade professor who taught me trademarks, Dave Gangji. He's, I think, at Oxford now. Uh, and uh, I, and he was actually from National Law School, who was Nandan's batchmate. And when I was applying for my master's, I, I wrote an email to Dave Gangji in terms of, because I was confused in terms of what law school to pick. I had also got into Duke Law School and UCLA, and I wrote an email to Dave saying that he had any any advice to offer in terms of where I should head, because this is what I want to do in my life. I wanted to practice in sports law. And he turned around and said, should you speak with Nandan? And uh, I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> <It's> my... <laughs> so somebody sitting in the UK is recommending me back to Nandan, saying, speak That's to That's brilliant. Um, well, I think that also that recommend yeah. that that shows Nandan's reputation for sure. Yeah, as well. Yeah. So that's so, yeah. and of course, I mean, uh, he he sort of you know is the father of sports law in India. For you can call him that, um, <laughs> even though he's not much older, you know, probably like ten years my senior, whatever. So, but uh, of course, I mean, I gave him a lot of credit for you know establishing what sports law looks like. But when I when I decided to do what I decided to do, because the knowledge around this area of law was so limited there were such few people practicing it that um, obviously everybody raised a question mark in terms of the kind of investment I was going to make because I didn't uh, you know at UCLA I didn't have a scholarship when I did my second master at ISDE I had a scholarship at ISDE but at UCLA there was no scholarship so I was going to fund my whole education of course my parents were really kind that uh, you know I didn't have to take a loan and they helped me with it but uh, at that point I'm making the kind of investment and I was also always very clear that I want to come back to India and work. 
So versus when I was going to be able to get returns on my investment in terms of, you know, or for that matter, be able to establish a proper career wherein I could support myself was a big question mark. And everybody, and that's the reason, I mean, I, you know, the first master's that I did at UCLA was a mix of entertainment and sport. It wasn't only entertainment. It was only sport because I did need a fallback option that in case sport was to not work out, then at least I have a master's in entertainment at IP as well. And because the film industry is huge in India and, uh, you know, uh, so at least that sort of was a fallback action. But uh, to be honest, I'm not into films at all. Like I don't, uh, everybody's been Netflixing and chilling through the pandemic. I don't know. So it's an area of law I don't really, you know, particularly enjoy working, even though I do, I mean, I am based out of Mumbai and I do a fair bit of work in entertainment, but it's not, it's not my thing. It's not what I'm passionate about. So for me, it was more about being able to club my vocation and passion. So when I came back to India from UCLA in 2013, uh, of course, uh, there were a lot of question marks uh, in terms of where I was headed because I was so keen on doing just sport, the old game. IPL, of course, had become a success by then, but there was no other sports league that really existed. We were just setting up. The hockey league had started, but it had failed. Uh, we were just setting up. Badminton was just being set up at that point in time, 2013. So that's actually the first sporting intellectual property that I worked on. And um, that in itself went through a huge dispute. Which was so, 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 sorry, there's a bit, of a, a bit of a jump here, though, because I think this is important. Right? So I love the fact that you've broken down I'm very honest about the the, the the consideration that needs to go into, hey, I'm going to invest in myself, I'm going to invest in my career, but there's no guarantee at the end of this that I'm actually going to get a return on this investment. However, I can sort of edge my bets by you know, making sure I've got a fallback, which would be the entertainment or where you do know there's a amount of work. So then you go back to India and then do you um, start working with a law firm? How does it? How does that work come about? Yeah. So, so you, so you get a job at a law firm, and did when you chose the, the the law firm, were you again doing a similar thing, trying to weigh up the sort of entertainment sports, given that it was still quite early in sports or development mm, in India? Yeah. So actually, before, I finished law school in 2011, and I worked at a law firm for a year between 11, 2011 and 2012, and I left for my masters at UCLA in 2012. So the law firm that I was working with at 2011, which actually is TMP Law Practice. I'm back working here. So a long association. I started my career here. And uh, so TMP Law Practice back in the day was, of course, an IP media telecom, essentially, firm back in the day. Of course, now it's a full-service firm. So, And the partner that I was working under was largely specializing on trademark and copyright work. So that's what I essentially gained one-year experience in that area. And then kind of made, uh, when I was at UCLA, also, I mean, I of course, I don't think any of people people who advised me in terms of how to pick a law school, everybody said that uh, pick the professors over the ranking because Duke uh, was ranked as the top 10 university in the US. I think Duke was at number eight when I was going for my master's. Duke Law School was ranked at number eight in America. But UCLA, the entertainment law program was ranked as number one in the world. So, you know, uh, when I wrote to Dave, I spoke to a couple of other people, everybody said, listen, you got Nimmer and Netanel teaching at UCLA. You also got some of the top professionals from Hollywood teaching at UCLA. I remember my entertainment law class was taught by this guy, David Ginsburg, which is, who's a producer in Hollywood. And some of, some of, you know, so those are some of the considerations that I had in terms of actually then taking a call that I wanted to pursue. I want to go to UCLA and not to Duke. 
And then when I got to UCLA, I got really lucky because I didn't even know that UCLA had the option for you to be able to do four credits worth of practical training in case you got picked on campus. So what they did was they had these uh, production houses come on campus for interviews and you could sort of sit for an interview. And if you got selected, then you could actually intern throughout your master's, gain some work experience. So that was that was really interesting. And then I, I chose to sort of sit for the campus placement and I got picked by Warner Brothers. So I was working at Warner Brothers for one year throughout my master's in that intellectual property department. So even though I was very stuck up on the idea, I went with this preconceived notion of I didn't want to work abroad, but it was really nice. And I got really lucky in terms of I still got that experience of working abroad of what it's like, you know, practical experience of working in the States. So, you know, I worked at the Warner Brothers IP and anti-piracy department for for the year that I was in. So it was, I, I think per credits about, I think, 56 hours. So I did about 220 odd hours to finish four credits of practical training. And that's great. Given given how much uh, sport relies on intellectual property, <laughs> that's you know it, exactly. it put you in a very good position there. So that sort of laid the foundation, and then when I came back to India in 2013, it was TMT law practice that had the mandate to work in the badminton league. So I spoke with Abhishek and I said, "Look, I don't want to do anything else. I just want to work on the badminton league." And he said, "Are you sure?" I said, "Yeah." And so then he was nice enough to give me the opportunity. He said, okay, get involved. That's how you're keen. You, that's how keen you are. So I just took it up as a project at, uh, at that point of time and uh, sort of saw it through. And then soon after, the league went through a huge dispute, actually. So that was also a huge learning in terms of, uh, from an IP perspective, having that background, because uh, the commercial rights partner of the Badminton League, it was back in the day called the Indian Badminton League, he had a fallout with the National Sports Federation and the, the you know issue went into arbitration. And then finally, what eventually ended up happening was the Federation started. So this was 2013 that the first season took place as Indian Badminton League. And then thereafter, the second season actually restarted it in a new name because the IP in the name belonged to the commercial rights partner. So then they had to do it, start off the league with a new name. And they, you know, we now have the Premier Badminton League. So kind of helped having that whole IP background to be able to understand what the dispute was all about and why certain things were happening in a manner that they were happening and be able to contribute to it, right? So, I mean, of course, sport heavily relies on IP and kind of made sense to have an IP background uh, and be able to contribute heavily on on that uh, dispute that took place. But while I was doing the badminton league, then of course, a couple of other other sporting projects came about. I was working with somebody else thereafter. And uh, we, the Indian Super League was being set up back then in 2014. So I got the opportunity to work on the Indian Super League in 2014. And then I realized that there wasn't going to be too much work uh, on the league side of things as far as football is concerned, because most of work ha- happens on the team side of things once the league is set up, to be honest. In terms of, you know, it's I think it's a really exciting space to work in the transfer market, etc. So then I switched onto the team side of things. And 2015 is also, actually, I was, uh, it was 2014 that I was, you know, uh, the realization had kind of dawned that while my master's at UCLA made a lot of sense from an IP entertainment perspective, it didn't make so much sense from a sports law perspective, I'll be very honest, because American sports are absolutely irrelevant to the Indian market. So, um, you know, uh, having learned about baseball, basketball, wasn't really the knowledge that I was really using in India. 
I was even though using a lot of my IT background or entertainment background on the sports side of things, especially when it came to organizing an event and working on the event side of things. Uh, and that's when, you know, that I started exploring the idea of doing a second master's. I was actually talking to somebody. Uh, it was just randomly. So one day standing outside court, I happened to meet somebody who had actually done the FIFA master's. And I said, uh, I was asking her information about the FIFA master's. And she was like, you know what, you should maybe look at is day. And it was actually a FIFA Masters alumni who recommended his day. <laughs> we usually are not. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so then I was like, wow, okay. That kind of made sense that his day was offering an executive program. So I didn't have to really like stop working, but I could still pursue a second master's. It's when I, you know, looked up his day and I said, wow, this, this is great because A, you have professionals enrolled in the program. So you network with professionals. You have professionals teaching the program. And that time is they had the tie up with Rexport. So you had like the best group of people teaching you the program. Right. So and that's how I got to know Mark Hobel. I got to know Ephraim. I got to know all these people in terms of, uh, you know, as professors at this day. So that sort of added to just the network that I built at this day, just added a whole lot to my credentials. Because then when I wanted to work with the, on the club side of things, and uh, every time they were hiring somebody international in the event, they needed a background check or for that matter, needed some help in a particular country. For me, it was always a phone call away. And I think the club sort of saw that as an advantage that she, that I was offering to them or whatever. And that's when... So, so, yeah. so there, there's, there's an interesting point here, though, which I think this is worth sort of highlighting again. So because we always talk about this in terms of how to become a great sports lawyer is to become a great lawyer. And then understand the sports context. So, from an educational standpoint, obviously you got your, you know, your grounding in IP law, you know, this this really strong base. And as you were saying, I didn't provide you with the context necessarily, you know, or or industry knowledge when it came to the Indian market. But what it did give you was the the base grounding that you could then go and do that. And then the second point was then once you've got, well. Stage three. So first stage one would be understanding the, the 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 legal area and becoming an expert in that particular area through your education and then through through the training and, and practical application. Then it was understanding the, the specific market that you're operating within and the limitations around that. And then you adjusted to that, you know, switching, you know, looking at slightly, you know, using that as a foundation to switch into, as you said, the team area. And then you basically enhanced your network and understanding through doing the the in-stay programs, doing this executive program to build the sort of the network. But it's interesting is in terms of if you're looking at that, that's really a 101 foundation in terms of how to build a career, right? In terms of like I was, it, I was following your article to the T. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, or maybe you were helping me shape it. Maybe that's it. But the um the the interesting thing about that though is that. And again, I think it's worth highlighting that that's not an easy road, right? There's a lot of work and sacrifice that goes into that. And I just think it's worth drawing that out again, because, you know, particularly as, you know, we talk about this in the global market, there's not actually that many full-time lawyers, private practice lawyers who are working in the sports sector at all. And there's, you know, most of them are doing it a proportion of their time, um, which is absolutely fine. It ranges, you know, from the, those who are 90% or whatever, down, all the way down to people doing two or 3%. It doesn't mean they're any less of a lawyer working in the sector. It just means that it's a hard market to, to build a client base in, uh, uh, and sustain it. So I think it's worth reiterating, you know, the sacrifice that has to go in to sort of build a, uh, a career path in this sector. It's not, it really isn't easy. Some people are very fortunate that they fall into it, but for the majority, you know, you have to be very intentional and, and go looking for it. So then you came out of the um, the, the 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 master's program, 
you start to do sort of, sort of more varied work and more sort of international work. Um, now, I know that you're someone who's very focused and very sort of like positive, you've got a very positive type of mindset. But one thing, how was it for you? One being an Indian in the international sports law landscape, which is, um, which is I guess, fine for and easy for me to say, because it it's my perspective on it. But um, obviously being a white UK used to be European, <laughs> sadly not anymore, but here since Brexit, but the, uh, let's say my heart still European um, uh, male, you know, I perceive the sports law world and the sports world to be largely looking like me which is, you know, white European male or at least Anglo-American male, maybe with some, some Australian, New Zealand sort of thrown in there. And I, I'm glad to say that's changing for the next generation. But how did you find that? Or was it, in it, or I should say, that's a leading question. Was it an issue for you coming into the market? Or was it, did you notice it? Or was it something that, you know, you just plowed on and, you know, didn't really impact you? No, of course. I mean, I face it all the time. As recently as uh, about exactly 32 days ago if I was to be precise on 30th December that was the most recent sort of you know uh, experience in terms of being targeted just because I'm a woman but that being said of course I mean in 2013 when I would walk into a room I would I would uh, have raised eyebrows all the time in terms of what's a woman doing in sport in India I mean I would be the only woman sitting in a you know bunch of uh, men out there in terms especially because anyways law in general is a, a male dominated industry in India sports law of course I mean when I was starting out it was like a big question mark in terms of what is she doing here does she even know and obviously then because I could talk sport because I, I had played sport and I, I mean of course I uh, almost played cricket professionally but I had also played other sports like I played lawn tennis I had played a bunch of other sports back in school I think that was the advantage of going to boarding school that uh, was you know exposed to all kinds of sports so because I could I could talk about sporting rules and regulations and I knew what offside and left side and onside is or what a particular fielding position is or I understood the rules of the game is when people sort of started giving me that respect that okay she knows what she's talking it wasn't so much about just knowing the legal side of things but just understanding sport in general I mean back in the day I can't. I don't think I can do it anymore. But back in the day, in 2011, 2012, I would know the leading cricketers in at least the top five to six cricket teams in the world. I mean, so I would not only know Indian cricketers, but I would know English, Australian, South African. Like I, I would have the you know the names on my fingertips. So the fact that I knew sports persons, I knew the regulations. Of so the do game. you think? Do you think then that that yeah, people say this, which is like you know, if you're from. Um, you know either a background or you know if you're a dis you say disadvantaged in the sense that the market is not uh inclusive then do you think that you have to i know other people have said this to me so I'm, uh, again i'm not sure if this was your experience but it sounds to me like you have to do that a little bit extra just to get credibility whereas again someone like me coming into the market i could just come in and go ah cricket yeah it's great and everyone will go oh, that's fine yeah you're through you you get a pass <laughs> essentially whereas you would have to be a bit more of a, a bit more of a fan or a bit more of a um you know a bit more knowledgeable about the game than, for sure. you know for sure. i was just i was just extremely fortunate that i follow cricket as a sport and cricket as a religion in india uh i i if football had been a religion i don't feel it 
football to me is a professional hazard so uh, <laughs> if somebody had expected that out of me about knowing to what the football i think i would have failed and how uh, but i got really lucky that i followed a sport that was a religion in the country so that i kind of you know made sense but i mean it happens all the time in terms of people try to intimidate you because they think that you're a woman and you will succumb to pressure uh they try and create all kinds of hurdles in terms of they want you to massage their ego and and me being the headstrong person i am i i don't think i ever succumbs back so it sometimes i end up rubbing people the wrong way that happens all the time but uh i think uh, the reason do you find that wearing yes absolutely i mean of course i, I would have to say that uh, i've been really fortunate to have friends like you i mean men who encouraged you know women to grow so uh, my colleague abhishek's been one such person who's you know uh, always given me the space to grow and had that confidence so of course there are, there are friends who've been extremely supportive but there are also those out there who are trying to put you down all the time so it's a good mix and i think uh, for me uh, more than anything else uh, my clients have had the kind of faith which is uh, you know always boosted my confidence at the times that i've been i've been sort of down in the dumps right so they've never looked at me as uh because she's a woman she doesn't know what she's talking they've they've always worked with me simply because i'm a sports lawyer it doesn't matter my gender doesn't really matter and i'm good with what i what i do so in fact uh, the relationship sometimes has grown from doing just sport work because some of the clients are into you know work across areas so it, it could be sport it could be something like infrastructure it could be uh, other you know, financial issues transactions and just because of faith that has been built in so i think that's been the key all these i mean now four years of running my own practice and also in terms of you know been working in the industry for almost 10 years i think uh, the ethos of you know what i stand by in terms of never letting them down in terms of trust they share, they have in me and then that has really helped me grow as an individual and they've given me the space to grow so there've been times when a client has called and said uh, hey i have some non sports work would you mind doing it and i my usual response is say this is not hey if if it is something that i i think that i can manage my usual response is that hey i may not be able to turn it around in 48 hours to 72 hours which is usually my turnaround time for sports work as and i might need a little longer for the transaction but i will do it and you know what sometimes like it's amazing that sometimes they actually turn around and tell you that hey if you want take 10 days take 15 days but i really want you to do it because i trust you with it so 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 the, so so it's it's again like breaking this down then yeah you uh yeah you, you did the study in yeah you got you put yourself in a prime position you got you managed to get in the right firm and it sounds like abishake has has been great in terms of you know uh someone to work with uh and initially starting out working under seems like you know having someone having a good boss basically is so important it seems or having great colleagues is so important but it sounds to me as well though that the the you know the initial struggles let's say to build credibility once that initial hurdles over it becomes a bit easier because also then i guess you probably got more it's easier for you to do, i know we all got self doubt but the point where you've actually produced the goods on numerous occasions right you've delivered the work your clients are very happy you know that that's what matters and and so external pressures you become probably have become more resilient over time um so what would you say though to to anyone starting out whether it's male female um but no doubt there's a lot of um women lawyers who are um around the world 
in different markets and they're probably going, wow, okay, you think India's bad? You know, we've got issues in our legal market or in, in sports law. Um, what, what sort of advice would you give for someone who's like starting out now? Would you, you know, looking back, would you, would you give yourself any words of advice or do things differently? I think it's really about what I learned from sport. It's about sticking to the fight when you're the hardest hit. It's really that. So, you know, when, you know, uh, so actually I was, I was working with TMT again from 2016 to 2017 and TMT underwent a merger and I didn't want to be a part of that larger organization at that point of time because of whatever reason. So I decided to move on and start off on my own for a bit. So at that point of time, I was moving to a new city as well. So when I was uh, moving to Mumbai, it was literally my two clients, uh, you know, who I expressed the thought uh, in terms of wanting to start out on my own. And uh, when I went to them and I said, I want to start out on my own, I said, if you're starting out on your own, we're coming on board. So A, that they, you know, my work had spoken for myself is why they had the confidence that, okay, even though she is just maybe five years into practice, we're still willing to work with her versus somebody way senior. Uh, a, that. B, you have, you know, I had to sort of rough it out in terms of, uh, I wasn't making the kind of money that all my friends were making at working at top law firms. So you have, of course, yeah. So you have to, of course, be prepared to rough it out for a while in terms of, you know, you, I, I think, I, again, what I said right in the beginning, right? The pressure to pay back a loan wasn't on my head. I was really lucky that my parents helped me with my education. So there was never this pressure of, oh my God, I need to pay off a loan. So I need to make an X amount of money ASAP. I had my time in terms of, when I wanted to, you know, choose my own timeline in terms of when I was going to see the returns in terms of the investment I had made. So that kind of, because I never had that pressure, that kind of helped me stick it out in terms of, you know, see some really bad days or for that matter, wait it out for the good days. And to be honest, I myself was surprised when I, when I moved to Mumbai in 2017, I of course started off the practice in single-handedly. I didn't even think that I would need to recruit in the first one year. But trust me, like within three months, I was already like looking for people to work with me. And uh, so work grew by leaps and bounds. And it's it's a small market still. Like India is still a budding industry. It's still a startup industry. But I was really fortunate that work came around. Uh, there was a fair bit of work that I had to recruit in the very first year. So I think if, I mean, I also often give Rustam's example, right? If uh, he's, he's somebody I've seen through his uh, struggle in terms of trying to get a job in the UK, but I, I think despite despite whatever he faced in terms of sometimes there were visa issues, sometimes something else cropped up. I don't think he ever he ever gave up, and he just kept trying, trying, trying till you know. And today he so today he's working at Mills and Reed. That's what I'm saying. One of the top law firms out there. So I think if you if you're not dejected too soon, uh, and just continue to work hard and try hard, I think things things fall into place. So that's uh, Rustam Sethna. Um, uh, for those of you who've written, again, a, a ton for Lauren Spoyers helping out for our football law conference in May and helped do the report with Michele uh, Colucci with the Sports Law and Policy Centre and Alexandra uh, Connie. Um, on that then, this, it sounds again, using the sporting analogy would be control the controllables. So stay focused on things you can control, right, rather than all the other things that could be distraction. And then it would seem to me that, that if you're very fortunate as you were, that you didn't have the immediate financial pressure the payback uh, alone that even if you do whilst it can um exacerbate the pressure 
and build the pressure, the still the course of action would be to try to stick it out. And probably you have to be a bit more calculated. It might take you slightly longer, but if you are, you know, have the intention that you will really want to do that and that is the area you want to do, then I always say this to people as well. It's at the point sometimes where it's the most painful is when you're getting the most learning. If you see what I mean, you find out more about yourself and, and you know, and it, and it makes you feel stronger once you actually accomplish it. I think that's really good, good advice. Then coming on to... I think people people ask me all the time, like I have these LinkedIn queries shooting at me all the time, given the, I mean, the number of sort of schools I have been to to pursue different kinds of courses, starting from LSE summer school to, you know, I did a summer school in entertainment law at the University of New Hampshire. Then, of course, I went to UCLA for my master's. I went to ISDE. I had another certificate course in the University of Geneva. Actually, that was, that was again, so that's, that's something that, you know, so no amount of education is ever a waste. So actually what happened was that I had, my admission to Duke came in much before my admission to UCLA. And I actually did pay up to block my seat at Duke. And what Duke offers to you is that as a part of a summer program before you actually go for your master's to the States, they have a tie up with the University of Geneva. At least back then they did. So you could do up to six, you could finish six credits in Geneva by staying in Geneva for a month. So it was coincidental that that year, uh, they had a, I mean, amongst other courses, the, the other subjects that they were offering at University of Geneva, sports law was one of the subjects. So I was, I thought that I would get two credits for the sports law in University of Geneva, and then I could do four more credits at Duke while during my time at Duke. So, and that of course was a calculated move because that was my, you know, inroads in terms of, for the first time I was studying about sports law in the European market. So I did have a fair bit of, before I went to ISDE, that was my, you know, formal education in terms of what sports law in the European market was. So then, you know, uh, I had paid up for that summer program and that's when, and then later, before I went for the summer program, my admission to UCLA came through and I sort of made up my mind that I was going now going to go to UCLA. So then I emailed UCLA. I said, look, I am finishing six credits in University of Geneva, which is a tie up with an American university. Are you going to take into consideration those credits? And then they turned around and said, no, we will not recognize those credits. So it was not... You know, it was not so much about whether that certificate really mattered. It was more about getting the knowledge and the exposure, the experience that I could get out of, the, out of that going to University of Geneva. So actually, the funny thing was that because almost all of Duke's LLM batch of 2013 was at that summer program, I knew everybody at the Duke program <laughs> that year. So And, and they're still friends, to be honest. And, uh, you know, and um, so I guess no amount of education is ever a waste. But of course, everybody must have the means for it. So I was, I was of course, very fortunate. But when I get these LinkedIn queries in terms of should we pursue a master's, should we not pursue a master's, A, I always give them Rustam's example that Rustam, you know, uh, was one of the very few cases. Uh, we actually did have formal education from the UK. Uh, so he ended up getting a job in the UK now after all that struggle. But nine times out of 10, you have to come back to India. And if you do come back to, if you, if you do come back to India, your job is probably not going to pay you as much to be able to pay off a loan. So if you have to take a loan and then go for a master's, I always tell them, hey, wait it out for five years, make that money, make the savings. And that's when you decide to make that investment. You don't make loan. And I think that somewhere around working, uh, gaining that practical experience also makes you realize that sometimes that this is maybe not of your interest. This is not what you want to do. So that's when you you don't decide to make that investment. Yeah, exactly. Or for that matter, you gain, gain enough Exactly. Practical experience to never want to pursue a master's. You don't want that formal education. So you could go either way. And so 
I think we focused enough on on sort of the career advice, and I think so. We were, but I think it's going to be really useful, particularly those, um, let's, say, let's say, in the called more sports law developing markets. Let's say where you know, um, you know, lawyers they say aren't really valued as much as they could or should be in terms of how they can assist the sports market. In terms of you know, the, what would you say, given the type of work that you've done? And the broad range of work that you've done. What is the the work, the piece of work, or deal, or case you've been involved with that you're most proud of? So I actually um, there's only one individual two-time Olympic medalist in India, Sushil Kumar, who's a wrestler. So I represented him in his Olympic selection dispute before the Delhi High Court back in 2016. So that, of course, was a great honor, even though the case didn't actually go in our favor. Uh, we were all we were trying to get do is to get him a trial here in India for him to be able to prove the merit whether he was fit enough to go for the Olympics or whether he was the top wrestler at the time or not. Uh, it didn't go our way, but I think that was of course a, a a huge learning, a b an honor to be able to you know represent somebody of that stature. So and also that was a challenging time because uh, literally the this you know the mandate came to us at. I think it was, I still remember the date, it was like 17th of May and literally like 2nd of June, the, the judgment was out as well. So between those 15 days, we literally spent, I mean, I think off, uh, I must have been in office 13 days, like like in cumulatively because I was barely slept like two hours a night or something like that. Where there were days we spent 36 hours in office. So A, a was a really challenging time. B was glad that I had a very, very nice team to work with. In fact, I had two interns at that point in time working with us on the mandate. And even the boys who they work so hard. I mean, they, you know, they again were spent 36 hours in office. So of course, A also you realize that how important, you know, for you to get along with the team that you're working with is in terms of on also the senior uh, the senior advocate that we had, you know, we were brief, briefing in the matter. Again, he was doing the matter pro bono actually. He wasn't charging any money for that. And despite that, uh, you know, he would, he would, we would be in conferences till 11 o'clock at night. And at 6 a.m. in the morning, he would like messaging me again saying, did you find out what I told you to research the previous night? So, you know, even learning from somebody that, I mean, I was uh, <laughs> about 27, 28 back then. And uh, he must be about 50 or the senior counsel. And just, you know, looking at the determination, the focus he had, despite the fact that he was doing the matter pro bono. You got so much learning out of that whole experience. Um, you know, the kind of focus, the kind of brilliance, his arguing techniques, all of that. So uh, that, of course. And then, of course, there, during COVID, it's been an extremely challenging time. Uh, it's It's been great in terms of intellectual growth because suddenly you're revisiting every contract you have ever written. I work mostly, I mean, well, that was my exceptional litigation experience, but I largely work on the transactional side of things. So just, you know, in terms of the clients calling you and saying, hey, look, the mandate at the start of the year, literally in March when the lockdown, uh, you know, lock, the lockdown was announced, the mandate was, A, of course, revisit all the contracts that are currently in force in terms of where we have liabilities, where we don't have liabilities, where we can, you know, escape certain liabilities, et cetera, et cetera. But also then we were, we were sort of redrafting every contract that had ever been written out, trying to assess things, right? So... There were new challenges thrown our way in terms of wherever there was money to be made. They wanted, despite that, because there was no certainty in terms of whether things will go through this season, 
be it the IPL or be it the ISL, uh, it was like, okay, wherever there's money to be made, we should get some money despite cancellation. Wherever there's, there's uh, money to be spent, we shouldn't spend any money at all in case of cancellation. So you're, like on, you're, you're suddenly looking at player agreements in a completely different light because that's where the salaries have to be paid. What's a sponsorship agreement where maybe you have to get some money. So you're looking at a completely different life and drafting a completely different approaches out there. And uh, so from, you know, um, from an intellectual growth perspective, I was kind of actually happy that something like COVID happened because uh, I was glad that I didn't have to work with, I was, wasn't only working with old template, templates and rewriting those, but actually like making an effort because otherwise it's like, okay, there's nothing challenging really coming your way if you're, if you're trying to do similar kind of work. But um, it's been, and also... I must admit, it's, I was just going to say that... Uh, I was going to say that, sorry, that's... Go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead, sorry. No, no, I was just going to say, and also because other than all of this that happened in terms of on-ground events, the other thing that happened was the esports and fantasy gaming side of things, right? Because that that suddenly saw the kind of boom that, you know, we never thought was going, we were going to see in India for the next couple of years at least, had it not been for COVID. Of course, I mean, uh, so, and then we had tension on the Indo-China border. So that also geopolitical issues suddenly started impacting the whole industry. So you're also looking at what's, what's happening from a geopolitical perspective. So it's been so much happening over the last eight, 10 months that it's been an exciting and a really challenging time. But nevertheless, I mean, huge amounts of intellectual growth for that matter. And then, so what do you think in terms of what are you watching in terms of developments in sports law? We've obviously everything going on with COVID. Is it pretty much that that theme or is there other stuff that you're looking at more broadly either in terms of the factual practice or stuff that you're just intellectually interested in? No, to be honest, of course, uh, there's a fair, there's been a fair amount of focus on gaming because gaming anyways in India, uh, you know, gaming, gambling, betting, all of those are state subjects in India. And every state has their own regulations as far as that is concerned. And actually, we've seen some development over the last six months where in uh, so basically, the distinction is that uh, what is a game of skill when played for stakes, uh, any game that has preponderance of the skill element when played for stakes is largely legal in most states in India. When a game of uh, game that has preponderance of chance, when that is played for stakes, is amounts to gambling, and that is what is illegal in most states in India. So. And of course, a lot of people have, you know, you see all these, the DAFA bets of the world entering the Indian market through surrogate brands and sponsoring, you know, teams in the Indian Super League or for that matter in the IPL because they have all been putting their money on the fact that gambling is actually going to get legalized in India at some point or the other. But, uh, and... It seems very, very familiar to the US, what happened in the US. It seems very familiar in terms of the, and the same actors who are uh, lobbying. Exactly. So everybody's been putting their hopes on that, but also that we, you know, and given the kind of impact that COVID had on the economy in general, uh, sort of betting was because the, it's an unregulated market right now. And therefore, and the kind of potential it has in terms of tax collection, it kind of would have made sense for governments to legalize it. But actually, there were a couple of states that went, took two steps backwards and made it illegal. So while earlier, uh, only states of Assam, Orissa, Telangana, those those are a few states that did not distinct <clears throat> differentiate between when games of skill played for stakes versus games of chance played for stakes. 
no game could have been played for stakes. There was also Andhra Pradesh that went and added to that list of states that were prohibiting gaming altogether. That happened as recently as in September. And then Tamil Nadu is another state that's taken a certain step where it banned certain games of skill recently, a couple of months ago. Then what has also happened is the Advertising Council of India that has come out with certain guidelines in terms of how games of skill, which is largely fantasy gaming in India, can be advertised in terms of the disclaimers that you need to use now, who can play that. In fact, the government uh, policy think tank, it's called Niti Ayog, has recently come out with a paper in terms of guidelines, in terms of what fantasy sports operators should do. So there's been immense amount of focus over the last 10 months on the gaming industry, of course. The government is trying to launch an initiative for developers who want to develop games, you know, uh, to generate employment for them, for that matter. So, yeah, the focus has largely, to be honest, been gaming and uh, betting for the last eight, ten months. That's so interesting. And I think that the, you know, more broadly, I think for many places around the world, but I always think, say, for example, in the US with DraftKings and um, FanDuel, one of the interesting elements are most of the people who win those games are professional fantasy players who are using algorithms and everything else possible, every tool possible, right, to make sure they're advantaged. And whilst you could argue that's a game of skill, it becomes, you know, for, for everyone, basically you have a seems to have a two-tier system where you have the professional gamers, basically the fantasy players, sorry, and then you have everyone else. So really, everyone else doesn't have a have any chance really of winning. And it, it would be interesting to see how that's going to develop in, in time, is in the sense of if they have to create some professional ranks and then everyone else, because there's just no way that, you know, the, it's a bit like the gambling syndicates, right? They, it's the same people who are, I, I believe, a lot of them are the same people who are involved in the gambling syndicates. They're using these algorithms that, that are used for micro trading and, and that type of stuff to really stay on top of everything. And that's just not really accessible. So let alone before we get into the, uh, the integrity issues and stuff like that, I think. It, actually, the US market is, I was, I was talking to Paul Green recently, actually, I was in a chat with him and, uh, you know, trying to sort of, even though this is not his area of expertise and it was only a brief chat in terms of, uh, you know, what the market is like in the US, uh, it's actually pretty well structured because you have a jury of sorts in each state, which actually determines what game is a game of skill versus what game is a game of chance. Versus the Indian market is actually you just walk into a lawyer's office and you tell the lawyer to write your legal opinion. Whether the law- <laughs> In terms of, and we're actually functioning with just like jurisprudence that, I mean, uh, the Supreme Court has ruled on a couple of matters in terms of what amounts to a game of skill and how, which is largely pertaining to something dating back in the 1950s or with regard to, you know, horse racing or rummy as games. And that's when we have, we have now interpreted it in the space of poker or for that matter, even fantasy gaming, right? We've taken that. And fantasy gaming, of course, has a proper judgment by one of the state uh, high courts. Uh, it's called the Varun Gumbar case, where, you know, uh, so they've laid down cr- clearly in terms of what are the principles, why it's determined to be a game of skill. But otherwise, I mean, uh, the Indian market could still do with a lot more formalization. And that's what I think the recent uh, Niti Aayog paper has done. They have given certain suggestions in terms of having a regulatory body, which, you know, will then ascertain whether a game is a game of skill or a game of chance and what they should do. So that's kind of nice. So that's what intertwines with the, you know, is 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 a game a sport or not as well, right? You know, because they sort of the two things go sort of hand in hand, don't they? I believe to a certain degree. So you've got the bridge argument, chess, that another where this divide is, and it also has, as you were saying, tax implications. Um, that was really interesting, but it does seem for almost a dead cert that has 
the, the, the media data world and sport merges that gambling becomes more prevalent just because it's such a, a lucrative stream of revenue from the sport, but uh, also from tax from the government. And then, yeah, you're, you're across you know, a lot of areas. Um, and I said, you, you've got this intellectual curiosity. One of the things I've been asking people on the podcast, just to see if there's any top tips for people, you know, because I use to stay on top of everything, I'll maybe use RSS feeds, I'll use Twitter lists, I'll use pockets to store information, I use Evernote, I might, yeah, I use a whole bunch of different tools to try and stay uh, abreast of what's going on uh, and, and largely fail. Um, but, but I try regardless. How do you stay on, or as best as possible, try and stay on top of uh, developments, whether it's domestically or internationally? I mean, thank God for law and sport, Sean. I'm one of your biggest advertisers. Anybody who asked me, it's like, I, I actually, I didn't even know. I was actually telling somebody, I was, I was doing through January on every Saturday, I was doing these mentorship sessions for these young girls who wanted to get into sports law. And then towards the closing bit of the session, uh, you know, they said, where, where can we go read some stuff on sports law? That's a law and sport. And I said, you probably have to take a paid membership, but it's worth every penny. And I said, no, that they allow you to read two free articles every day. And I said, wow, I didn't know Sean, Sean changed the policy. Yeah, yeah. It's not every day. It's not every day. If, 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 if it's, if it's yeah, every day, we've got a problem, but it's uh, three thought. articles a month. That's what but I we're thought. trying to and do something. Said, no, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. I'll check that out, though, if that's the case. <laughs> well, good, good for them. If, they, if they've managed to get access and they can do it, it may be that they're talking about the news items are all freely accessible. So, 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 or, or, they, or they might have gone on to, it depends on the time of year and what they were looking at. We do, like, you know, some of the content we do make uh, publicly accessible. If, um, you know, if we think that, that it's got a higher purpose and impact on the market, um, rather than being more targeted towards uh, people uh, working in the market, then, then we might, we may make it freely accessible. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, of course, I, I mean, I was just going to <laughs> I'm, now, I'm now written a task down. Go and check all the membership plans. <laughs> I wonder why we had a spike in India. I was surprised. I said, all my life that I have been reading Law and Sport, I know that there's three articles per month. And I said, I've been a paid member for, for a really long time. Do you know what, though? At one point, it was free, right? We had to, we had to put the membership, you know, we never wanted to charge for content. I think I mentioned this before. That one of the backstories, I wanted to try and keep all of our written content free to access. But people just plagiarized the hell out of us. And so they didn't give us credits. So so that's why we did it. But the um, uh, thank you very much for recommending us. So apart from reading Law in Sport. Um, I mean, of course, we have a we have a practice at the farm that every morning, uh, everybody uh, who works in the sports team has to send out a minimum of two developments that have taken place on the previous day or on that morning. And uh, I usually tell them that just write it in the form of tweets because then we, you know, the good ones, we put it out on the form Twitter handle as an update for everyone out there. But uh, so that, of course, is a practice that we do. So they're constantly everybody, including myself. That so what's your Twitter a- handle? So people can follow if they want to. It's AM Sports Law. That's what it's called. I mean, and my personal Twitter handle is Ahana. And I don't really tweet out of there anymore. But it usually... See, that's cool as hell. That you got your own name as your Twitter handle. I like, actually you know, have been very a- lucky with that, that I've got my first name as my handle across LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Yeah, there you I go. See, that's where being, being, being a Sean, that, that was never going to happen. Right? I was too slow on the uptake on all, all platforms. So um so that's pretty cool um, it doesn't so, happen okay, with so the new did... platforms anymore though it doesn't happen with all <laughs> the new platforms coming i'm too old for that now <laughs> and so so you i love this team so a team update 
And then uh, do you use it for in terms of the storing um, any developments? Do you use any any like apps like I use like Evernote or like the Web Clipper or the Pocket or something like that? Or do you just uh, have? To be honest, no, we have a like a basically a form sort of cloud uh, database and we just upload and it's compulsory to write articles every 15 days in the domain that you're working in and also share like weekly updates. We also have like, basically this was something that we started during the pandemic that we were doing uh, presentations ev during the pandemic initially during the first lockdown, of course, presentations every day uh, in terms of whatever domain you were working on, you had to make a presentation. I mean, your turn would obviously come once in two weeks or once in three weeks, but people were making presentations every day. So everybody was getting update on ev what's happening in every domain, be it like copyright, be it trademark, be it sport, be it, you know, uh, broadcasting or anything else for that matter, uh, white collar crimes, et cetera. So that, that practice kind of helped. And then post the lockdown, of course, we have now moved to an alternate Saturday model. So everybody, one associate is making a presentation every alternate Saturday. So of course your turn will come once in three to four months, but kind of just knowledge sharing is extremely important because as lawyers anyways, uh, the only way you can showcase your knowledge in India is by writing because you're, you're not actually allowed to advertise in India according to the Bar Council regulations as you can't advertise as a law firm. So the only way to show you off your credentials is to write. And the only way to be able to write good, well, you know, write well is when you know what's happening in your industry. So reading is so important, essentially that. So we, you know, we use all kinds of platforms to read, 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 get that content. And then of course, structure the content. We also now, I mean, uh, as far as entertainment is concerned, we do a monthly newsletter, but as far as sport is concerned, we do a quarterly newsletter. So we also, that's something that we started doing during the lockdown. Okay, can, and, I, can, I, can I get added to your mailing list, please? I don't think I'll get uh, that. Uh, I, we're, we're actually not, but I will make an order that we're in the process of trying to develop a mailing list for the newsletter to go out, but for now we just put it out on our LinkedIn handle. Uh, okay, that's cool. I'll check it. Yeah, I'm going to send you a link. Uh, forward, it, forward it on. I'm sure we've got great content. So, um, Ahana, um, that's all we've got time for. But um, I think, you know, it's important to acknowledge because you you don't like talking about yourself, really, which is really hilarious, right? Because I got you on the, on the podcast, but it's not something you feel much more talking about other things other than yourself. But, you know, thank you for being a pioneer in India. You know, um, thank you for persevering. I know that, you know, some may listen to this and think, well, you know, you're able to do it, like have the, the benefit of um, going to these great academic institutions, but without determination and focus, right, you wouldn't be where you are and uh, perseverance. And so I think it's awesome. I, like, I love the fact, like many of your colleagues in India, like Nandans and Anish and um, uh, yeah, there's so many um, now that are coming through, they're focused on, on helping the next generation and really creating these pathways. And I think it's awesome that you're doing that. I think it's so, so important. And I think one of the things can be, it can be very tempting, I think, when you're in a developing market, just to stay focused on what you're doing, because it's, you know, you've worked hard to get there. But I think it's great that there's this uh, culture of, um, you know, we're going to say a collective of you who are really trying to help, you know, develop the market as a whole and, and give pathways to other people. So that's awesome. And thank you, obviously, for being a Lawrence Sport Editorial member. I really appreciate your input. Um, other than that, everyone, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this. Remember, we always say, if you enjoy the podcast, you think it's useful for people, please do send it on to people. Uh, please do comment on social media. Give us a thumbs up or a, you know, a star rating on, on uh, iTunes and Spotify. And wherever you are, whatever time of day it is where you are, 
I hope you have a great rest of your day or evening.